Now we are back in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, this is week two now, back into it. And, and you'll remember, uh, if you know about Luke's Gospel, you'll remember Luke has done this careful research into the things concerning Jesus and he's writing so that people might be certain about those things. Know that Jesus is the Christ and he is the Saviour of the world. And so Luke so far has shown us, he's shown us that, he's shown us who Jesus is and, and then he shows us what it means to be his disciple and to follow him and we've looked through that. And now in this series we're looking at what does it take to enter the kingdom of God? Now that is a huge theme, that is massive, that is eternally important and so you might be wondering why in the passage today Jesus seems to be teaching good table manners. Do you wonder that? He's teaching his disciples which seat they should choose when they go to a wedding, the kind of people that you should invite if you're the host, and how not to refuse an invitation if you are invited to a banquet. Now, some of you might remember June Daly Watkins. Some of you remember her? Now, this is no joke. She she was a teacher of of fine etiquette uh, and very famous in Australia, but this was no joke. I found this sign, what would June Daly Watkins do? You might have heard of what would Jesus do, WWJD. This is WWJDWD. The power of manners in a rude world. Now, is that what Jesus cares about? Is he teaching good table manners? Well, I think we know, well, no, there's more to it. He is, yeah, but there's, there's more to it. And you'd be right. Jesus is teaching through parables. Right, parables are those stories of everyday things, but stories of everyday things to help us understand spiritual realities of the kingdom of God. The parables are stories that demand interpretation because they carry a deeper meaning below the surface. And so there's two today, and for those guys doing their sheets, there is space to draw pictures. You might like to draw the two parables as we go through them, and I hope you remember them. But there's two today for us, and there's 11 across this chunk of Luke that we're doing. So we should, we should know, well, how do we interpret parables when we hear them? And so it's got well, three things for us. Firstly, when you're reading a parable, not every single detail means something else. Some of the details are just there to kind of highlight the main point. So that's the the first thing. Second thing is, you might have heard that a parable only has one main point. You might have heard that said. And sometimes that's true, but other times there's more than one main point. There might be two or three or four. And the way we figure that out is by listening carefully to the details and looking at the characters and seeing what's happening and then we can figure out what, what is this parable teaching us. And finally, thirdly, a hot tip for today is you need to pay careful attention to the beginning and the end of a parable. Beginning and end. Some people say that's the best way to read a book. You read the first chapter, read the last chapter, and then you know basically what's in the middle, so you don't have to read the rest of it. Beginning and end. It's true for parables. And so if we are, if we are people who are looking closely and listening carefully, we'll see that Jesus is teaching about something much more than good table manners. He's teaching his disciples how to be humble in a proud world and how to enter the kingdom of God. And that's something that we all need. So the first parable, introduced in verse 7. This is the beginning. Jesus is having dinner at the, at the house of a prominent Pharisee. 
And he notices that as people are coming in, they're all taking the, the best seat available. This is like my kids when we get into the car. They all want to ride shotgun. They all want the seat near the window. They don't want to be stuck in the middle. So they elbow and shove to get in the good seats. And the reason that the people are doing this is because at this time uh, in history, they didn't have social media to kind of display their social status to the world. They had dinners. They had these banquets. This was the public exhibition of their social status, how close they were sitting to the host. And so they're all trying to get as close as they can to the head of the table. But what Jesus sees here is he sees what's behind the behaviour. He sees the heart of those going for the high place. It's the heart of pride. And so in this first parable, Jesus is teaching to humble yourself for heavenly rewards. Humble yourself for heavenly rewards. So this first parable, the setting is a wedding feast. And this is not like weddings that you might go to where there's a table setting plan and your name card and you know exactly where to sit. No, this was you decide where to sit. And so Jesus firstly gives the what not to do if you go to this wedding Verse 8, do not take the place of honour for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place. Yep, don't take the high place for yourself because then this VIP might come in and you have to get up and do the walk of shame in front of everyone down to the lowest place. So don't do that. Instead, verse 10, here's what you should do. When you're invited, take the lowest place so that when the host comes, he'll say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honoured in the presence of all the other guests. So it's the opposite. You'll you'll do this walk of of fame and glory to the high place in front of everyone. It's It's the ultimate wedding party power move, isn't it? Take the low place, move to the high place. Now, is that what Jesus cares about? Does he want his disciples to get good seats at weddings? Is that his concern? Well, I think we know no, no, it it couldn't be. There must be more to it. And you'd be right, it's a parable. It's an everyday story with a spiritual reality. And so we get that in verse 11, the end. The end shows us that's what's going on. Jesus says, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And so Jesus is pointing out of this world to the the day this world ends and God comes in judgment. This is how God will act on the last day. God will humble the proud. Those who exalted themselves in this life will be humbled on that day. But those who humbled themselves The reverse will happen. They will be exalted. God will lift them up to eternal glory. So if you're listening to this parable, you should be asking, well, how do we be humble? How do we humble ourselves so we might be lifted up? Well, Jesus gives a a concrete example to those at the party. In verse 12, he turns to the host of the party and he says to him, when you give a dinner... Don't invite your rich neighbours because they'll pay you back in this life and that's why you're doing it. Instead, invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind and those who cannot repay you in this life. And you do that because you know that God promises to repay the humble 
in the next life. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. In other words, this is how you humble yourself now to be exalted by God in the end. You associate with the lowly of this world, the ones who don't get invited to parties, because they're not rich or they're strong or they're powerful or they're popular or productive. The world just ignores them, but God loves them and, and he wants his disciples to love them too. He doesn't want them to think they're above anyone, but he wants them to welcome everyone. And and as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we should have this great openness to all people. We should be the most welcoming people and group of people that there is, no matter what someone's social status or popularity. And the reason that Christians are doing that is, is not because they can give us something, we can gain something from them, but because God promises to give us something. And we hope to gain that. We hope to gain the resurrection to his kingdom. It's not wrong for us to seek that gift from God. It's not wrong for us to seek the glory that he has promised us. He wants that to be our hope and our treasure and our joy and to seek it with all our hearts. And we do that by humbling ourselves in this life, knowing God will exalt us in the end. So God wants us to be those people who humble ourselves, seeking those heavenly rewards. And now the mention of this glorious resurrection and last day causes someone at the the dinner to shout out in praise, verse 15, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Because he recognises Jesus is talking about the, the hope of Israel. He's talking about the time, the promise that they had and this hope that the Messiah would come, conquer all their enemies and in peace establish this kingdom and host this end time feast and banquet of celebration. And so Israel hoped for that and the Pharisees especially thought they would be the ones first in line for this banquet. They would get the best seats at the table. And so Jesus knows their hearts. And so this second parable is a warning to those who think this way. And so Jesus' second parable is about not refusing God's invitation. And so this second parable, Jesus tells a story about a master preparing like a mega banquet and inviting many guests. It's a huge party. And when it's time for the banquet, he sends out his servant to go tell everyone it's ready, come now but they all begin to make excuses. Uh, It's like sometimes you might be sort of sitting at growth group and you're ready to go and then all the messages start coming in. It's like, I can't come, I can't, you know, it's it's disheartening. And so this this, uh, host was disheartened because someone said, I bought a field, please excuse me. I bought five yoke of oxen, please excuse me. I just got married, so of course I'm not coming. Now these, we should notice, these are not bad excuses, I don't think. You know, property and work and family, weddings, these are important things. And they would have sounded perfectly reasonable to those listening. They're saying, yeah, that's a, that's a fine reason not to go to a banquet. What's the problem? But here comes the twist in the parable. When, when the servant reports to the master, what's his reaction? He's angry. 
This is one of those surprising details in a parable that's there really to help us understand what is the deeper meaning. It's meant to surprise us and shock us to think, why did he get angry? So we're going to come back to that in a minute. Just hang on to that. So the master, he tells the servant, go out into the streets, bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. So he's doing what Jesus said just a bit earlier, invite those lowly people to the feast And he does that, but there's still room. So the master sends him out again. Because his desire is that his house be full. That his house be full of feasting and celebration with as many people as possible. And then we come to the end of the parable and we see the spiritual twist and the meaning. Because it's right here in verse 24 that Jesus, he kind of switches from speaking as the master to the servant to speaking himself to those who are present at this dinner party. And he says in verse 24, I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. And so what Jesus is saying here is that he is the master of the banquet. He is the host of the feast in the kingdom of God. And it's through Jesus that God is making his invitation to all people. But the Pharisees, they're refusing that invitation because they're rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. They don't believe that. And so now if we go back to the the angry response of the master, this explains what's going on. Because those excuses that people made for not coming to the earthly banquet, they might have been okay for that. But to refuse the feast in the kingdom of God is to refuse God's Messiah, the one that he sent. And for people that do that, this this is their situation. John tells us in his gospel, John 3.36, whoever believes the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. You see, the Pharisees refusing God's invitation by rejecting Jesus. God's wrath remains on them. They are those who thought they were in, but they're actually the ones on the outside. And we must not be like them. This is a warning for those listening. Do not be like them. Instead, receive the invitation of God. Did, Did you notice the desire of the master to have his house full? That is God's desire. God wants his kingdom full. And he's not picky with the invitation. He invites everybody to come. Everybody is welcome. Everyone is invited. And God is eager that you accept his invitation. He's eager that you enter through the narrow door while you still have time. You see, it's not God who excludes people from his feast. Uh, It's people who exclude themselves by rejecting the invitation, rejecting the Messiah. They put themselves outside. And so parable number two is do not refuse God's invitation. Now in Luke's gospel, this is the last time that Jesus has a meal with the Pharisees. He doesn't doesn't meet with them again in this way. And it's from this point they actually ramp up their opposition to him and and they want to kill him and they finally get him. And they quickly race him through a trial to get him crucified. 
But the way the gospel tells this story is this is not them gaining a victory over Jesus. This is not them showing that they were right and Jesus was wrong. This all happened according to the definite plan of God. And this was Jesus humbling himself. Jesus humbled himself. And this is what Paul teaches the Philippians in that passage that Roger read out for us. Is that Jesus was God who was in the highest place. But he made himself nothing and took the nature of a servant and humbled himself to the lowest place, which was death upon a cross. But he didn't deserve to be there. He went there willingly, innocent, righteous, in obedience to the will of the Father. And for that reason, God exalted him to the highest place with the name above every name. So Jesus is now the king of God's kingdom. He's ruling over everyone and everything and for all time. Now that's how Jesus humbled himself to be exalted. But, but when we talk about humbling ourselves, we're not talking about humbling ourselves to be exalted in the same way. When we talk about humbling ourselves, we're talking about humbling ourselves in two ways. Humble ourselves before God and then humble ourselves before others. You see, we, we humble ourselves to accept God's invitation in the Lord Jesus Christ. We humble ourselves by admitting we're not worthy to be in his kingdom. Because we are actually those proud people. We are those who think we deserve a place at the table. We, we are far more proud than we think. It's in our pride, in our sin, that we do not deserve eternal life, but we deserve God's wrath against our sin. That's, that's our place. But this is why Jesus came. Jesus came to take our place, to take our sin and to clothe us in his righteousness and his perfection so we can enter the kingdom of God and have a place there. Right, the way we accept that, that work and that invitation is by humbling ourselves before him. It's by confessing our, our pride and our sin and our great need for his forgiveness. That is how we humble ourselves before God. We depend upon him every day to give us all we need and we depend on him in the last day to lift us up into that kingdom forever. We humble ourselves before the Lord. This is what uh, the Bible teaches, uh, Peter and James teach this. You might know these verses. James says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. And Peter says, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. So we, we humble ourselves before God. And the second thing, because of this, we also humble ourselves before others. Because we're actually we're following the example of Jesus in that way. And Paul has the best advice for how we do this, how we humble ourselves before others in Philippians. Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. So if you're like me, you don't naturally do that. Um, you're someone who thinks about themselves a lot because we still struggle with pride. We still struggle with selfish ambition, the things that we want. We still struggle with vain conceit, which just means kind of having a, a big puffed up head, having a, a big ego. 
Oh, that's, our, that's our default way of being because of our sinful nature. We're always thinking about ourselves. Right? What's important in my life and, and what do people think about me and, and what do I need and what's next for me? We're always thinking that way. But Paul knows the power of the gospel to transform our minds and change the way we think. He knows the power of the spirit that is within us to give us the mind of Christ. He knows it can free us from those selfish, proud thoughts. Especially think about other people. To look to the interests of others, to put their needs above our own and to, to lift them up above ourselves. That's the power of the gospel. And we, I was just thinking about this, we have so many opportunities to humble ourselves before others. Pretty much every interaction that we have is an opportunity to be humble. Every conversation, every trip in the car, every meal that you sit down to with someone else. Right? Every person in your life, you can be thinking, what do they need? How can I serve them? We can, we can humble ourselves before others throughout the whole day. And so what is good to remember? Well, I think WWJD is good to remember. What would Jesus do? Because he lived this way. He was a servant. He humbled himself. And he calls us to follow him. He calls us to be humble in a proud world. right? To be lights that shine in darkness through our humility as we follow him. But more importantly, we should remember this one. Not as catchy. WHJD. What has Jesus done? Right? Because this comes first. Jesus humbled himself to death upon a cross. And it's because of that that we are saved. And it's because of that transforming work that, that we can be humble. That we can take the low place in this world. Because we know Jesus has gone before us. And that Jesus is there with us. And that if we do that, he promises that in the end that he will lift us up to be with him forever. And so the way of humility uh, is the way of life for a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, It is a good way uh, and it is a way that ends in glory. So let us walk humbly with our Lord and let's pray that he would do that work in us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending the Lord Jesus Christ uh, who humbled himself his whole life but to the point of death and death upon a cross. And we praise you, Lord Jesus, that you are risen and reigning and ruling forever as the king of God's kingdom. Lord, lead us to humble ourselves before you, confessing our sin and asking your forgiveness. And then, Lord, we pray, transform us to be humble like you, to think about others more than we think about ourselves. And we cannot do this on our own, so we pray for the powerful work of your spirit in our hearts to turn us from ourselves to love and serve others. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Saviour. Amen.